I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. My guest is Sherry Mandel. She's an award-winning writer who has contributed to numerous journals and publications. She's the author of several books, including a spiritual memoir, The Blessing of a Broken Heart, which won the National Jewish Book Award in 2004. And she teaches writing workshops and studied Kabbalah in Jerusalem, and she's the author of this wonderful new book that we're going to be talking about, The Kabbalah of Writing. Sherry Mandel, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Oh, thank you. I absolutely love this book. I so enjoyed engaging in the many, many writing prompts you share in the book. Many years ago, I did a a group process. It was a 40-day group process of sharing and writing about our lives that that used hundreds and hundreds of prompting questions to reflect back upon just about every event of our lives in every area of our lives. And as I was reading your book, I was struck by the similarity between the way you use the Kabbalah to not only map out the many ways to approach writing, but also to expand the ways we can look at the events of our lives. And over and over again, your writing prompts just transported me deep into my past with this amazing richness that was infused by being fully present in it with a a new, fresh perspective. Mm, Oh, thank you. It's so nice to hear that. And that's like one half of what your book is about. The other half is... I mean, it is a book about writing, and it's also very interesting how you came from a a secular background and studied and taught writing at the university level and really had no interest in religion or spirituality. So could you talk about writing as a spiritual path and what inspired you to turn in that direction since you were already teaching, writing, and how you got involved in using the Kabbalah to help map out and approach the writing process? Well, first of all, I always liked to write, even, you know, I remember in junior high writing poetry, and I always felt that the voice that I used in writing, not that it was a literary voice, but that it was a deeper voice, and that it was a voice that knew more than I did. So I always connected to that. And then when I went to college, I went to Cornell and I went to the ag school actually because it was a state school. So it was less expensive. 
And I thought I would study ecology and then become a reporter about science, which actually would have been a good idea. But then I had to take agronomy and I just couldn't bring myself to study agronomy. I don't know why, because now it doesn't sound so bad. But I took a poetry class with Archie Ammons, who won the Pulitzer Prize. And I just loved writing. I wrote so many poems that semester. And he really appreciated my work. And so I think that every writer needs to, you know, needs a certain amount of appreciation to continue. Then I got a master's in creative writing and poetry at Colorado State. And I taught for a year. It was a one-year appointment. So I had a little money and I felt like I knew I was Jewish but I had had no Jewish education whatsoever. I never went to Sunday school. I never had a bat mitzvah. And I wanted to know what it meant to be Jewish because I didn't have a very good impression really of being Jewish. I guess I had absorbed a lot of anti-Jewish sentiment around me somehow. Maybe it was because it was post-Holocaust. I mean, I was born in the 50s, but I feel like my parents also, they didn't want to have very much to do with organized Jewish life. So I was traveling and I came to Israel and I was staying with friends and it turned out that they were getting divorced. So I had to leave there. And they told me about this program in Spot, which is where actually the Kabbalists in the, I think it was the 15th century. I might be wrong about the date, but that was where they lived and worked. And I went and studied on this program, and I started learning about Judaism. And I was kind of flabbergasted because I just thought it was so interesting, Jewish philosophy and Jewish beliefs. And also studying Torah was really interesting to me because it's studied collaboratively. Like you have a chavruta, you don't learn alone, you learn with somebody else. And the language was interesting to me and also the way they learned. So eventually on that program, somebody came and talked about the Sirot. He talked about Kabbalah. And I remember thinking like, this is wild. This system is so fundamental and so original and inspiring that the minute I learned about it, I knew that it was something that I just had a passion for. But it wasn't until years later when I started teaching writing in Israel. I mean, I ended up meeting my husband in Israel and staying in Israel. We went back to America for seven years, but then we moved back 27 years ago. So I started teaching in Jerusalem. And it was at that point I realized that really the Sphirot were an amazing system for talking about writing and thinking about writing and teaching writing. Now, you've written, I believe you've written two memoirs at this point. Is that correct? I think it's three. Three. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I wrote The Blessing of a Broken Heart. That was about, you know, a tragedy that we suffered. And then I wrote The Road to Resilience, which maybe it's not a memoir. It's kind of a how-to book or a self-help book about, you know, what resilience is, what it really is, and what it really means spiritually. And then my third book was Reaching for Comfort, which I trained to be a pastoral counselor, and I worked in the hospital. So it was about my encounters in the hospital. 
So talk about Kabbalah and then take us into how you used it in the context of writing. Okay, so first of all, Kabbalah means to receive. And it's the mystical tradition that was received with the Torah. And the spherot are the 10 means, sometimes it's 11. The spherot are channels, but spherot in Hebrew, words have usually three-letter roots. So the word spherot is connected to the word for mispar, which means like number, but it's also connected to the word for sefer, which is story or book. And it's also connected to the word sapir is like sapphire. So it's also like a gem. And the spherot are the divine design of God's universe or the way that God sends energy to the world. I mean, there's God that just stays above and, you know, doesn't really interact with the world. But then there's the divine being that sends his energy down to the world. And the spherot are the 10 channels of creativity, in a way, that God communicates to us with. And they're kind of attributes. There are intellectual ones, and then there are more emotional ones. But it's just a really comprehensive system. And each sphera interacts with the other sphera. So even though I talk about them independently, they're not really independent because they're always coming in combination with another sphera. Let me give an example. Like chesed, which is kindness. That's one of the sphera. So I write about it as a kind of generosity. But the sphera of kindness, usually it has to be tempered with gavura. Gavura is limits or restriction. Because let's say if you're a parent and you're only kind to your child, then that child will grow up very spoiled. So it always has to be mediated with another sphera. And like when I talk about generosity or chesed in terms of writing, I think of it as the first draft. I mean, I spend a lot of time writing and I spend a lot of time editing my work, but the first draft has to have a freedom and it has to have a lack of judgment and a lack of control. Otherwise, it's hard for a person to connect with that deeper voice. And there's a need just to let go and also to let the subconscious or the divine kind of guide us or inspire us at that point. So there's something called free writing where you just keep writing and you'll even write, I don't know what to write, I don't know what to write until you come to the next sentence. And it's very generative. And then you can go back to that kind of writing with the eye of Gavora, of limits, and see what speaks to you and what's fresh there and what has power and what you think you want to develop. Or maybe there's something right there that just works because sometimes we are just given these gifts of something that's complete. And then you said it's in relation to the Sefer of Limits. So bring that into this dynamic. Well, the sphero, they're actually always moving between expansion and contraction, between 
like generosity, I wouldn't say stinginess, but limiting, because that's kind of like the flow of life. And then they filter into a harmony, like some of the sphere, some of the spirit are masculine, some are feminine, and then some are balance of the two. So for example, limitation, like restriction, as a writer, you want to, I mean, not all writing, because some writing is just like really free and associative, but usually you want to have a theme. And in order to have a theme, you need to limit yourself, right? So it's almost like you're creating a structure as you write. And I talk about that more in another part of the book in Bina. Bina is like to build or to comprehend and how to develop an essay. But, you know, maybe I'll talk about that because I think it's really interesting because I, I use another structure called Pardes. Pardes means like paradise or the orchard, but there's a midrash, a Jewish story about four rabbis that went into the Pardes and only one survived. So it's like a dangerous place, but it's used as like an abbreviation or I guess a homiletic or a way of approaching argument or a way of, and I use it to approach writing because Pardes, it's an acrostic, I guess, for Pshat, Remez, Drash, and Sod. So let me tell you what those are. Pshat is the simple meaning. So for example, you can write about your mother's kitchen or your parents' kitchen, and you can just describe it and give the concrete details. And that brings you back into that place. But then Remez is what does it remind you of? So that that expands the writing in a way, you know, does it remind you of a song? Does it remind you of a story? Does it remind you of another kitchen? Does it remind you of a restaurant? Does it remind you of, of another room? And then drush is like the explanation, which becomes sort of the theme. Like, what is this kitchen saying to me? You know, what can I learn from it about myself, about the world, about other people? Like, what is its message? But not in a didactic way, in an original way, because that's we move to Sod, which is the last level of Pardes. That means secret. So it means something original, something new, something unique, and something you didn't know before. And that's really the point of writing. Like to start with your mother's kitchen, or I didn't put this in the book, but it's a great exercise to write about the way your mother dressed, like, you know, or your father, like what they wore. But the point isn't to stay with that. The point is to find the revelation there or the insight that's waiting there. And the way to do that is through painting the picture with concrete details, with sight and smell and hearing and touch and taste, and then reflecting on the experience. And a lot of reflection is repetition. So to use repetition, to try to go deeper into that kitchen or into a story, an experience that happened in that kitchen, even using dialogue, and then finding the theme or even the question you're asking yourself there, what it means. Why am I alighting on this scene? And what can it tell me about myself? What can it tell me about other people? What can it tell me about the world? And what can I say 
not that hasn't been said before, but that's hasn't been put together the way I'm putting it together now. Because when you have that flash of insight, that's when you know that there's some sort of arrival. And, and I think that that's really the purpose of writing often for me is to find something that I've been missing, something that I didn't know, something that I couldn't know until I looked deeply into this text that I've created. And, you know, we know that the world was created with words. And actually, a lot of Jewish mysticism is talking about the alphabet, just understanding, like working, playing with the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet, and the way it's constructed, what the meaning of each letter is. So creation comes about through language. And I think that that's what we, anybody who writes anything, is participating in creation and has the opportunity for recreation. And in Hebrew, it's called renewal, some sort of renewal. Because I think that's what we're always looking for. Like, you know, like God renews the world. Every morning there's a new sunrise and a new sunset. And it doesn't look like what it looked like the day before, even though it's in the same category of phenomenon. So I believe that anybody who reads this book or gets interested in writing has the ability to find newness and to be renewed through the process of writing. So it's really wonderful how all of these things, like you use examples of, or prompts, like being in your mother's kitchen or noticing what she's wearing or your father's wearing. These are all like entrances into our our memories. And it's fascinating how our memories are known to change every time we access them. Right. Yeah. So, so there's a strange kind of relationship that we have with our past and our memories because of that. And I love how that relates to the creative process that that we essentially are. And also how Kabbalah sounds like it's this multi-channeled way of the divine expressing itself through us and inspiring mm -hmm. us although we each have our own like chosen destinations and also points of departure so that each of our stories start from a unique place and will of course take us to unique places so there's a continual unfolding shifting and changing dynamic not only into you know through the present into the future but also as we turn our attention back into the past yeah i think with writing there's the possibility of healing the past because first of all you can use imagination so let's say you had a bad experience in that kitchen you can say things like i imagine myself you know, or i imagine my mother saying this or could it be or it's possible that, so that you can sort of unfurl other possibilities. And you can use words like, I wish, I wish it had been. And also when you employ language that's subjunctive, like if I could have, or she would have, or if I had known, then that language has power and the language enters you. And there's a kind of healing that can occur. 
even James Pennebaker, he's a professor, I think he was in Texas, and he worked on studies about the healing power of language. And he did some experiments where students wrote, and if they wrote about an experience, it didn't affect their health very much. But if they wrote about an experience and the feelings that surrounded that experience, if they reflected on that experience, and we're talking about usually difficult or traumatic experiences. So when students wrote about the experience and reflected on it, their health actually improved. They took their pulse and their blood pressure and temperature and things like that. So physically, writing can lead to improved health. And so it it has these healing aspects. And I feel like when each person expresses themselves truly, like also there's a chance for an authentic voice. I think that's what I felt as a kid, that I touched that authentic voice when I wrote. And I just have this feeling when everybody can really express their story and live their story, maybe it's a little optimistic, but then like all the shared stories can be stories of redemption, you know, because a lot of writers, like especially I started off as a poet, there's a lot of poets who wrote from despair and, you know, who killed themselves. And a a lot of writers have that side of themselves, that disturbed side. But I think writing can also come as, you know, as I'm saying, as a means of healing and come from a healthy place and actually reverberate so that a lost soul or a broken heart can kind of revive itself through the process of writing. So you were able to access your own authentic voice through writing. I'm thinking about people who haven't connected with writing, who who don't know that that's an available option for them and a way to connect with their authentic voice. Yeah, well, first of all, the world is much more visual now, you know, like words, I think, are having less value in a way because it's really the picture. You know, I'm thinking of like Facebook and Instagram and social media that, I mean, people write, but it's really the image that is paramount. But in terms of like anybody starting out and just wanting to start, I think just writing a list or writing a letter, something that's non-threatening or writing a letter to yourself or writing a letter to somebody who hurt you or writing a letter to somebody who helped you and that you may or may not send. I mean, I guess it sounds kind of old-fashioned to write a letter, but just articulating you know, our feelings and our stories and putting them into language transforms them in a way. So what you're talking about is opening the door to discovering and exploring our authentic voice that exists inside of all of us, but may not have found a way to express itself, or we have not found a way to recognize it in ourselves. Right, or to value it. I I think a lot of people want to keep a journal also, so that even giving yourself five minutes a day to write something, just so you have some kind of record of where you've been and what occurred and how you processed it. I think what I'm saying is that really writing is the best way for some people to process things. But I think it's available to a lot more people. And that even now, you know, even with social media and with so much communication, that 
I think communication that's with ourselves in a way, because writing is really about listening to a voice inside of us and being in touch with something. I don't know if it's divine or subconscious, but letting that emerge. And maybe it's even more important now than it ever was. I think so. I mean, I think it's always been important, but yeah, these days it seems like it's more important than ever because there's so many things that are pressuring us and stressing us and vying for our attention and distracting us from that authentic voice within us, that sense of who we most truly and deeply are within ourselves. And going back to the kindness of writing, there's so many elements of that from the neurological benefits of writing and how it it can open us up to the possibility of healing within. Because by doing this kind of inner exploration, it actually naturally changes our perspective about the events that we've been through. Yeah, we have what we call the retrospective narrator, the narrator who looks back and can understand what she or he didn't understand in the time that the event was happening. And sometimes it takes a long time until you can see a pattern or you can see how something that seemed difficult actually enlarged you or how you managed it and how it reverberates into your present life. But I just want to tell you like my personal story with writing because my son, Kobe, was murdered when he was 13 in 2001. And he was my oldest son. So we'd only been living in Israel for five years at that point. And of course, we were totally devastated. We had three other children who were younger. And, you know, going through life after that was really, that first year was just torture. You know, it was just a total nightmare. In fact, like when people say to me, oh, you know, the traffic was a nightmare. Or if they say, oh, traffic was murder. It's like, please, you know, first of all, I'm very sensitive to language, but especially that word. So we did many things to try to, you know, continue to be parents to our children and to try to continue to live. Like we made a foundation and we worked with bereaved children and we're still doing that. In fact, my daughter just took over the foundation. It's called the Kobe Mandel Foundation. But in tandem with that, I started writing because I told my friend a story that had happened on Kobe's birthday was five weeks after he was killed. And I told my friend a story that had happened on Kobe's birthday. And she said, you have to write that. So I wrote it. And then a few months later, I kept writing. And I wrote a book, you know, it's called The Blessing of a Broken Heart. And it was kind of a spiritual mystery because Kobe was killed with his friend, Joseph Yishran, who was 14. They cut school that day and they went exploring. We live on the edge of a canyon and there are caves that monks dug out and lived in here from the fifth century. And from this canyon, you can walk all the way to the Dead Sea, which is about like 10 miles away. And Kobe and Yosef, they went to that canyon to explore, and they were found in a cave, and they had been beaten to death with rocks. So when I started writing, the cave was a very strong image for me. And the first part of the book was all about 
like the terrible pain and suffering that Kobe went through, that we went through, that our kids went through. And then I had a lot of incidents with birds. And a lot of people who have somebody in their life, you know, who died, who they were very close to, a lot of people have experiences with birds or butterflies, or I even had an experience with a cricket, like sort of nature speaking to us, like the soul speaking through nature. And so I had all these experiences with birds and bird's nests. And later I learned that in the Kabbalah, actually, it says that God hides himself. It's a pernal bird's nest is where God hides himself, you know, until he's ready to redeem the world. And so I, I had this part with the cave, and then I had all these stories about birds And I didn't know how to organize the book, how to arrange the chapters. And then I went to a class with Aviva Zornberg, a Torah class, and she's a phenomenal teacher and writer. And she mentioned a bird's nest. And I realized that my book could be divided into two parts. Into the cave would be part one, and part two would be the bird's nest. And what's really interesting about that, I think, is that the cave and the bird's nest are reverse images in, in many ways, because the cave is especially like, I think they were going to Herodian, which the cave, it's called Haritun. It's one of the biggest caves in the Middle East, certainly the biggest cave in Israel. And there's over a hundred rooms in that cave and you need a light to see through it, you know, and if you don't have a light, then it's total darkness there. So the cave is an image of darkness. But the bird's nest is an image of light and openness and flight and rebirth. And so once I discovered the arrangement of the book into those two parts, not that it healed me, I mean, I'm still suffering from my son's murder, but it gave me like an opportunity for renewal because of that image of the bird's nest. So imagery often in writing You can start with an image, like something, like an example I give with my students is a Yortzeit candle. That In Judaism, we light a candle on the anniversary of somebody's death. And often we use these glass cups that it comes in, the candle comes in a glass cup. So you can use the glass cup afterwards, actually, to drink from. So in writing, we have the opportunity to start with an image and then transform it or reverse it or deconstruct so that you're working with transformation. And when you find those moments of transformation, they transform you. It's really interesting. You're talking about these different images of like containers. And I would love for you to talk about using writing as a kind of a container, as a way of creating the kind of space that we need in order to allow for transformation, particularly for really difficult things that have happened in our lives, that have happened either to us or that we've witnessed, or things that have, in a way, have shattered us or deconstructed us in a way that previously we were not able to cope with. And then using writing to create a kind of container within which we can hold the experience and all the emotional components of it, the ones that keep arising 
every time we're reminded of the experience? Yeah, well, I mean, I think writing itself, you know, like going into a room and giving yourself the space to write, that it's a way of containing your mind because it gives a place for your mind to reveal itself and to sort of be transported onto the page. But I think that working with trauma and working with shattering, that a lot of times it's creativity that comes in writing that somehow comes to rescue the experience. You know, I don't want to just say that only writing is going to heal you because you do need people. Like I had a whole community of people and a whole team of people, but not everybody has that. And writing gives you a place to bear your soul, really. And, you know, it's almost like you're witnessing yourself. And there's something very powerful about that. But I want to say another word about that, because I also write children's books. So I broke my ankle like five years ago, and it was a bad break. And I had an operation, and it was very traumatic and painful. And we have a holiday called Sukkot, which is where we build a sukkah outside. And a sukkah is like a little hut. And we live in that hut for seven days. It's usually in the fall. And not everybody sleeps there, but we eat all our meals there. And the year I broke my ankle, I had a walker. And I went into the sukkah. And the sukkah is not that big usually. So I felt like there was no room for me in that sukkah. And then I got the idea for a children's book about Sukkot, where there was an elephant who wanted to go into the sukkah, but there was no room for him. And so then I made a whole character about an elephant who loved to sing, and he heard the singing from the sukkah. But I think that using that experience to write a children's book, it's called The Elephant in the Sukkah, that it was entertaining, but also healing. And whenever we can be creative and use the experience to like spark our imaginations and to come up with something that we have no idea, you know, that that was where we were going. Like to allow like even difficult experiences to inspire us because like it's very nice to be inspired by nature, you know, to go outside and write about something beautiful you see. But I think that one of the keys of life is to also find I mean, it sounds like the wrong word, inspiration, because, you know, trauma is not inspiring, but to allow it to catalyze us in some way toward creativity. And writing, I think, is the most accessible and available tool for everybody. Well, it seems to me from my experience of reading that most of the great literature is inspired by terrible experiences and events that have happened to people, that it does seem to be a major catalyzer and inspirer of creativity and a desire to work with those experiences in some, let's say, alchemical, creative way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that word, to find an alchemy. Yeah, because also every story needs conflict. So if you bring the conflict yourself, You have, you know, the elements and the question is, what is that friction going to do? It's like, what is that fire going to do? Is it going to become passion or is it going to become destruction? And sometimes it's both. But then, you know, what happens after that? 
And you wrote a bit about the paradoxical nature of the art of confession. And there's a line from your book that the world is where God is revealed and concealed at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it's a way to enter into that. And I feel like I have a lot of direct experience of this in a sense, because I don't really write much. I've never been able to maintain a journal for long, but I spend a lot of time going into a kind of liminal space and doing a lot of inner deep self-reflection or just spending a lot of time in an unformed nebulous kind of liminal space where sometimes things reveal themselves and come through and sometimes don't. So it's sort of like like the nature of the void or a womb out of which things can arise, but don't necessarily. It's just a matter of what's going on at the time. Mm -hmm. So again, going back to writing and in relation to not writing, because I feel like I'm accessing much of the same things, but I'm not putting it down on paper. And I wonder if you have any experience with people or if there's anything that you would say to people who say that they have a hard time writing? Well, yeah, I mean, it's not for everybody. Everybody has different, you know, forms of intelligence and talent. And it's definitely not for everybody. But I think even just keeping a journal by your bed so you can write down your dreams or write down what happened to you or just because part of it is just keeping a history of yourself. And, you know, one amazing thing I did for somebody, I had a friend who was dying, Jonathan Chernobyl, and he wasn't a writer, you know, he was like a metal worker and he had worked on a boat, he'd been at Woodstock, he'd been at the Democratic Convention when there was rioting, and he just had an interesting life. And so I used to meet with him and we decided to write about his life as a children's book. And so I helped him and we wrote a children's book for his grandchildren. And we titled it Before You Were Born. And like, we had a great time doing it, even though we knew he was dying, but he was very open about his impending death. But I think it also gave him some comfort to know that his history was going to be passed down to his grandchildren who were very young. And he was also a cameraman and he has all these reels of film. And, you know, my friend, she doesn't know what to do with them. But like something like as portable as a little children's book is something that can, you know, be passed down. So I think that there's ways, like creative ways of figuring out how to write something that will last just to keep a history of who you were and who you are. And it doesn't have to be every day. You know, it can be like once a month to sum up or for a holiday. Well, I actually have a notebook. And at the moment, I have two notebooks, not next to my bed, but actually on my bed right next to me and a pen right there and my reading glasses. So I'm always ready to write things down. But generally, I almost always only write when I'm reading books for interviews like this. And actually... As I'm reading books, I'm doing a lot of inner reflection because almost all the books that I read trigger memories and give me new perspectives. So I end up writing down things that come up while I'm writing 
in relation to the books that I'm reading. But at the same... That's a beautiful... Yeah, that's like a reading diary. That's an incredible thing to keep. But when I go into those states of reflection, I like to close my eyes. And when I'm in there, I don't, I don't really want to open my eyes. I don't want to come out of it to write things down. So there's a tension there for me. Well, it sounds like it's not the right time for you to be writing because there, you know, it sounds like you're getting what you need. So it doesn't sound like the right time to write. You know, it could be like, in the morning, you could write for five minutes or, you know, what you received, but not not at the time you're going into this kind of other other consciousness. Mm-hmm. Because when I reflect back on it, I do a ton of writing. <laughs> it's ironic that I don't think of myself as a writer at all. And I'm, I actually think of myself as not writing at all. And yet I do tons of writing. But another thing you had talked about that children's writing project that you did with your friend who is dying. I love the idea of writing collaboratively, writing with somebody, because I think that can give someone, perhaps like myself or someone else who who has a hard time getting themselves to write, to actually inspire us to write more. And because I think another person's perspective and another person's energy, creative energy, can really inspire new ways of, of creating that we may may not think that is natural to us. Right. Well, that's why it's also good to give a class. And I'll I'll probably be giving classes, you know, on the internet. But it's really good just to take a writing class. Like, part of why I wrote a book is that I've been teaching writing for, I mean, I taught before, but now this current series of teaching writing, I've been teaching basically the same group for over 10 years. So... I had to always come up with new material and I had to read a lot to develop myself as a teacher. And also it helped me develop as a writer, but all my students, most of them, a few of them will write anyway, but most of them won't write except if I give them an assignment. And even like a few, like one, especially, you know, she says she was terrible writer and she doesn't think of herself as a writer. But through the years, she's really emerged as a writer and also just being able to express her experience in that small group has been kind of eye-opening for her, I think, because everybody goes through so much, you know, most people go through so much pain and joy in life. And when you share the experiences, it kind of releases them in a way and it lets them like fly off a little bit. You know, I'm thinking even of the time with COVID, which was such a dismal time and such a horrible time for so many people. But it also gave us time, you know, those of us who were healthy. It gave us a lot of time and it gave us time to, I mean, like for me, I noticed, I was able to notice things that I didn't notice before. And I think writing also gives us that ability to kind of turn inward, but also to turn outward, you know, at the same time and observe and it just heightens like it's a kind of heightened vitality but i don't think anybody should force themselves to write or feel they have to write because everybody has different means of expression and creativity well i love all the prompts in your book i mean you give so many way more writing prompts than i've ever seen in any other book i mean you give way more 
meaningful prompts in this book. I mean, other books give all kinds of prompts, writing prompts, but these were, you know, reflective, self-reflective writing prompts. And I also felt a strong desire to engage with all of them and actually write them all out, but I just don't feel like I have the time to do all of that. And in relation to taking a writing class, I think I would be, I mean, I, I know I can feel that I would be terrified to take a writing class because not thinking of myself as a, a writer or a good writer, I would be very uncomfortable sharing anything that I actually wrote with other people. And I'm sure there are a lot of other people who will be listening to this who might have similar feelings. Yeah, well, everybody feels that way. I also feel that way after I write. All of my students, they always want to start with disclaimers, like, I didn't really do a good job. I didn't really mean this. I don't really think I said what I wanted to say, because it's very, you're very exposed when you write. But, you know, I think the fact that I'm a pastoral counselor also, which is all about being a good listener, it is tricky because like I was in writing classes. I write about this in the book. I got my master's in creative writing and the first poem I gave in my teacher said to me, this sounds like a 16-year-old's poem, you know, and he didn't mean it as a compliment. <laughs> I, was, I was devastated, devastated. And writing teachers, you know, can be very critical, but a good writing teacher sees the heart of what a person is trying to say or the power of what somebody is trying to say and helps pull it out of them. So, you know, it is hard to share what you've written, but in the right atmosphere, it can really build a person up, I think, because it's, it's a kind of intimacy. But in a group when everybody's sharing and is willing to share. Also, I always give people the option not to share what they wrote. That's very generous of you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's important that lots of times if I'm in a writing group, there's times I don't want to share. You know, and that's really important and valid. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's why I said that's very generous of you. I, I've not always encountered that kind of generosity from other people. Uh -huh. Well, you know, one of the spherot is netzach, which is endurance or determination, persistence. And I know for me as a writer that, like, for example, my agent, she always says this to me that publishing is about persistence because most people, you know, don't get big publishing deals. So, but I think anybody who wants to develop a writing practice, you know, it's sort of like yoga. Like you just, you have to do it. You have to find a way to do it a few times a week because it builds on itself. Like if I've been away and I haven't written for, a, you know, three weeks or a month, I'm lost. But once I get back into it, then it builds because I get ideas and they relate to something else that I thought about, or I get a new idea, but it has to be, not that it has to be, but it helps if it's a kind of practice. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if there's anything from your book that you would like to share. It could be some of your own writing from the book or perhaps a quote, because you quote many writers in the book talking about writing and things about their lives that have inspired their writing and inspired them to write? Oh, yeah. I just opened to something that I love. It's James Baldwin, Notes of a Native Son. And it's just sublime writing. 
because he situates, I, I write this, he situates his family story in the drama of a larger historical moment. Because I talk in the book about how it's important to see the bigger picture, to try to create a bigger frame for our personal stories. And this is just an excerpt about his father dying, but it's all connected to the riots that were going on at the same time. And I'll read it. On the 29th of July in 1943, my father died. On the same day, a few hours later, his last child was born. Over a month before this, while all our energies were concentrated and waiting for these events, there had been in Detroit one of the bloodiest race riots of the century. A few hours after my father's funeral, while he lay in state in the Undertaker's Chapel, a race riot broke out in Harlem. On the morning of the 3rd of August, we drove my father to the graveyard through a wilderness of smashed plate glass. And he says that he took the political violence that accompanied the death of his father as a personal message, viewing the events as a corrective for the pride of his eldest son. I had declined to believe in that apocalypse, which had been central to my father's vision. Very well, life seemed to be saying, here is something that will certainly pass for an apocalypse until the real thing comes along. So that the personal and the political are so intertwined here. And in a way, his father's vision seems to be coming true at the moment of his father's death. But it also corresponds to the birth of a child. So there are so many layers here. Mm, yeah, that's really a wonderful evocation of a way of looking back into the vastness of our experience. Right. And also that he didn't agree with his father, right? He was opposed to his father's worldview. But there he's saying, my father's worldview is somehow coming true at this moment. So it's a kind of generosity toward his father also. Yeah, well, he was open to seeing a different perspective, which which is something that I, I find so wonderful about writers in general, that there's something about the act of writing and the practice of writing and opening ourselves up to the inspiration of writing that lends itself to a much more open perspective about things and not getting stuck in old ways of mm -hmm. seeing everything. Right. I, I just opened to something else that kind of underscores that. Like it's a writing assignment. Write about write a story about a time you were lost. Now tell the story from the point of view of an animal or object that witnessed you. So it's totally twisting the story inside out because it's like an animal's point of view about you being lost and what they saw happening. So like there's ways of changing perspective. Yes. And that reminded me of, you have another writing prompt where you have us write about a traumatic event that we experienced and writing it through the perspective of another person who is involved in it. Right. So it's like you become the third person because it's the friend becomes the first person. My students, when I had them write in the third person or the second person, it took them out of themselves and it allowed for more creativity. A lot of times creativity is connected to limits. Like I wrote in the book how at one point I was teaching high school 
And I was giving them a writing assignment and I just happened to find a blue flipper in the parking lot. And I brought in that blue flipper and I said that they had to write a story, but they had to include the blue flipper. And somehow they came up with really great stories using the blue flipper. But when you have those limits like Gavura, then lots of times your creativity can be heightened or when you change perspective or when you give yourself the opportunity to look at something in a new way. Yeah, I've experienced that. And I see that around me so much that if we're given just too much space, that we can become paralyzed with the overwhelming sense of directions that we can go in and having structural limits can narrow our field down in a way that can relieve us of that sense of paralysis that probably comes out of a fear of failing or fear of not being able to do what we're wanting or hoping to do. Yeah, I think freedom sometimes is like misunderstood. Sometimes if you have too much freedom, you know, it's hard to find your way. Like I heard this quote once, like there's no vacation from a vacation. So, you know, yeah, there always has to be like that dialectic. There has to be the back and forth. And sometimes there has to be contradiction too and accepting contradiction. You know, that things can be both. It can be both this and this. Mm -hmm. So another thing that I found very interesting that you write about near the end of the book is, and this is in relation to your quote from Cheryl Strayed, and it relates to creating a unique persona from which to write from and how literature is not a place for conformists. So not being afraid to create a challenging persona, let's say. Right. You can admit, you know, Philip Lopate writes about that, that a good place to start is your quirks, your idiosyncrasies, your stubborn tics, the antisocial mannerisms, and so on that set you apart from the majority. But it's a good place to admit, like, your peculiarity, peculiarity. I can't say that word anymore. <laughs> Peculiarity. <laughs> like, it's a place to just be honest. And I think that people love hearing about other people's failures and mistakes and shortcomings. And that's a place where you can admit to being messed up or to doing something wrong. You know, like in that Larry Levin poem where he was wrong. And there's something so liberating about just being able to say, you know, I failed, I was wrong, I did the wrong thing, I didn't see it right, or, you know, I can be selfish, you know, but not just confession for the sake of confession, but, you know, to build a persona. But there's somebody else in the book who says that she doesn't like the idea of voice as something that is like just, you know, magically comes out of a person. She thinks that voice is something that's constructed, and it's constructed by what we read and the conversations we have and, you know, the movies we see and the religion we practice or don't practice, but that it's constructed through, you know, like the way we need a good diet. We also need to take in things that will build us so that we can construct that voice so that it has more mastery, but also the ability to be vulnerable. I think that's what you were talking about before. That you know that it would be hard for you to share your writing, but really, writing is often about vulnerability and being able to say, you know, 
I'm soft, I'm weak, I lose it, I'm angry, I, you know, I'm not perfect. None of us are perfect. But when you share that imperfection, there's such a sense of like validation and, and camaraderie. And that's actually one of the most wonderful things about literature in general, because most literature are about tragedies and failures and challenging events. And I think when we read about others' failures and others' challenges, it gives us a sense of, of a new opportunity for us to learn from that and to look at our own circumstances in a new light that, okay, we're not only are we not alone, but maybe I can learn something from this in some, some kind of mysterious way that, that maybe will help me to work with this somehow. Yeah, I like what you said about maybe I'm not alone. Because I remember when I was a kid and I used to read, I felt like the voice of the book almost like penetrating my brain. And one of the things like that I really struggled with as a kid was like, how can it be that my mind is just my mind and that I can't know somebody else's mind? I can't know somebody else's consciousness. But somehow through literature, you can sort of slip through into somebody else's consciousness. I mean, it's a crafted consciousness. I don't think it's just, you know, like free association most of the time. But it still gives you that insight into how another person thinks and what another person feels. And it makes us less lonely. Yes. And it's been wonderful to talk with you about all of this. And I totally, totally love this book. And I've actually been recommending the book to a number of people. Oh, great. I'm so happy to hear that. Sherry Mandel is an award-winning writer who has contributed to numerous journals and publications. She's the author of several books, including a spiritual memoir, The Blessing of a Broken Heart, which won the National Jewish Book Award in 2004. And she's the author of this book we've been talking about, The Kabbalah of Writing. Could you give us your website? Okay, it's kobymandel.org slash sherry-mandel, K-O-B-Y-M-A-N-D-E-L-L.org slash sherry, S-H-E-R-R-I dash Mandel, M-A-N-D-E-L-L. And I'm on Instagram as sherrymandel10. And also on Facebook as Sherry Mandel. So again, it's been wonderful talking with you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it.
That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Ooh.